Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and bailing twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience, creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly, and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. The outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y.com, to start customizing your furniture now. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The Chinese wok was intended to be used on a hearth stove. And the heat is comparable, I would say, to a semi-professional stove like a Wolf or a Viking range. Grace Young is the author of Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge, the ultimate guide to mastery with authentic recipes and stories. Young is a true believer in the power of the wok to transform simple ingredients into highly aromatic foods. But before we get to Grace Young, I'm chatting today with reporter Danny Lewis. Of course, food advertising has undergone considerable changes over the last hundred years, but it's really thanks to one man in particular. That's Albert Buten. He was the first person to put food in motion, literally flying food, in order to sell it to consumers. Danny Lewis originally reported this story for the podcast 99% Invisible. Daniel, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good. Uh, The last hundred years or so of food advertising has been shaped by this one simple fact. Real food usually looks pretty unappetizing on camera. So so why is that true? Well, because when you're looking at food on its own, it's just kind of boring. Really, you kind of have to get it to, to move around in order to make it at all visually interesting. So let's go back in time. So in magazines 100 years ago or whatever, uh, Back even in the 20s and 30s, food was often illustrated. I mean, I remember I have lots of those old magazines. 
which gave them a little more creative control. Then in the 50s and 60s, there are television commercials, uh, and then voiceovers are used in a particular way. How, how do they use voiceovers in those commercials? So a lot of ads in the 1960s and even the 70s really relied on uh, voiceovers because the way they were shooting it, it wasn't doing anything interesting. So all the action had to come from how people described it. It starts here with a lightly toasted bun and then a pure beef hamburger, sizzling hot and the sesame seed crown. So they would talk about the food itself what it was made out of, maybe how it was made, and a lot of testimonials. So people talking about how much they loved the food and how much they enjoyed it. Meanwhile, it's still just kind of sitting there on a plate. So the FTC had a problem with uh, the Campbell's Soup, quote-unquote, incident of 1968. Uh, <laughs> I love that. So what, what happened and what was the problem? So Campbell's had come out with this new soup that was full of vegetables. But the problem was when they went to shoot the soup in the studio, the vegetables kept sinking to the bottom of the bowl. So what their producers ended up doing is putting marbles in the bottom of the bowl and then pouring the soup in. That way, the vegetables, instead of sinking to the bottom, stayed on top. The problem was when the FTC found out about this, it accused Campbell's of misleading consumers and threatened them with legal action. Um, they never ended up getting sued, but it did scare the industry enough that they were like, okay, we really need to stop using tricks like they would uh, use Elmer's glue instead of milk in a cereal commercial, you know, things like that. So who was Albert Buden and how did he change commercial food photography? Albert Buden changed the entire language of food advertising on video. One of his maybe most exciting innovations was uh, how he brought in movement. I think maybe the best example is, you know, I remember this. <laughs> I remember seeing this commercial when I was a little kid of um, the stream of orange juice pouring from the top of the screen. The whole stream is just moving. And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of oranges come catapulting through it in this like beautiful slow motion movement. And it was very, very 1980s, but uh, it, it looked very cool. Did, did he have to invent different kinds of cameras, high-speed cameras? Did he invent uh, different gear to shoot things uh, in action? Was, you know, was there any technological advance here? Oh, yeah. So in Buden's studio... They actually used these incredibly high-speed film cameras that the military had actually developed for weapons testing. So you film a bomb going off, you can then go back and watch this slow video of exactly what happened, you know, in that explosion. You know, I spoke with a couple of people who worked with Buden back in the day uh, named uh, Jackie Canto and uh, Harry Drennan, and they said that these cameras would just burn through thousands of feet of film in seconds. Here's Jackie. His real thing is just food in itself, its essence, is really sensual. You know what I mean? If you see a hamburger commercial, you, know, you really want to eat a hamburger, and that's the point of it, and I think that's what he introduced. And you'll never see it any other way now. So to get everything very consistent, he and uh, a crew of engineers started designing what they called rigs, these devices that would help them get these movements very consistently and repeatable. So those oranges that were flying through the curtain of juice, those were thrown from a catapult hmm. so that every time they could get the exact right angle, they could control exactly when the oranges were going to fly through. They could control every aspect of it. Here's Harry. It was so much prettier than other people's work, as far as I could see. It was beautiful at lighting. And then with all, once he got into all the movement, I mean, he was, a, he was ahead of the curve. You know, um, as, you, as you know, I mean, modern advertising is all based on the subconscious, right? I think there was a quote saying, what we're trying to do is be the modern-day Pavlovs and ring your bell with these images. So there are 
appealing to some subconscious uh, desire on the part of the consumer. Um, how, how does his style relate to that, do you think? That is, you're not just selling a hamburger, you're selling something else, right? I think I think that's absolutely what he was trying to do. He really wanted that visceral lizard brain reaction from the audience because that's you know the best way to sell something. Uh, you also spoke to some folks who work for a company that still does this kind of tabletop media work. So are they using the sort of the same mechanics and the same techniques that Buten invented originally? Yes. Yeah, so I spoke to folks at uh, MacGuffin Films and uh, their commercial studio, and they're using a lot of the same techniques, but just in a very more high-tech way. One machine that they they have, it's actually designed so it will catapult a onion, say, up into the air. And as it comes back down, it triggers uh, a sensor, which then kicks off these two motors that then cause a pair of knives to actually swing through and slice it in half before it hits the table. <laughs> uh, here's one of the employees I spoke with at MacGuffin Films, Anthony DeRoberts. We break down the elements. So we, we know we've got to get a, an onion to a certain height. Then everything's computer controlled. So when the onion's in the right spot, these two sharp knives come through, split the onion and leave you with the uh, slice down the middle. It's it's this incredible piece of engineering, and just it, it it blows my mind that 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 this is how they do it, and that this is I, I can only imagine what Albert Buden would have would have thought of this machine. And kids, please don't try this at home, right? I mean, that's... oh, absolutely not. I mean, yeah. that was reporter Danny Lewis. His piece was originally produced for the podcast. 99% Invisible. Milk Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my intrepid co-host, Sarah Moult, and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a uh, new batch of questions? Yes, Chris. I am very ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, my name is Chad Kirby from Western New York. Hi, Chad. What is your question today? Uh, well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for taking my call, and it's a great pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, I was given a vertical smoker a little while ago and have been trying to figure out creative ways to use it. Uh, I also happen to be a fruit and vegetable farmer, so I have access to a lot of peppers in the fall. We grow about two acres of peppers and eight different varieties, including poblanos, which I would like to use to make a chipotle pepper instead of red jalapenos so it isn't quite as spicy. So I guess I have two parts to my question. Uh, The first is what would be the best way to smoke and preserve these peppers? And then what are some ideas on how to use them? Well, can I ask you a question? Because I don't own a vertical smoker. Can you explain how that works? Well, there's two pans in it, and it's kind of like a cylinder that stands upright, and the bottom pan holds the fuel. I use wood. And then there's a middle pan where you can put water Water. in if you're, yeah, to kind of keep the meat moist if you're smoking meat. And then there's the grate on the top and the lid. And so you don't use the moisture when you're doing the peppers? Well, that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out, because I didn't want to, like, overcook them with the smoke, because I don't want to make it too hot. But I did use water this fall, and they didn't really dry out, which is kind of what I was hoping for. So I ended up just freezing them to preserve them, but I was hoping to figure out how to smoke them and dry them. Well, I think there's... I, I have one of those, actually. Okay. It's a charcoal, old charcoal one. It's a Cajun cooker or something. But that's going to oh. smoke it, but it's not going to dehydrate it. So I think right. I think what you need to do... also have a dehydrator, which you can buy from Cabela's or whatever. Of course, you have two acres of peppers. You have to get a big dehydrator. My <laughs> guess is you have to not just smoke them, but you got to dehydrate them. you got to get the out. water content down like you would with, you know, like fruit apples and that sort of thing. So I think you have to dehydrate after smoking would be my guess. And then I, okay. um, and then I vacuum seal when I used to do this, I used to vacuum seal it and 
shove it in my root cellar. Anything with a lot of moisture in it is much more prone to bacteria. Mm. I mean, absolutely, mm-hmm. you will have bacteria. So you yeah. do need to get rid of all the water or you know, as much as possible. So, so are you dry. thinking about doing this just for your family or more on a commercial scale? Definitely just for my family oh. for now. Yeah. Go on to Cabela's. You know, they sell all the hunting stuff. They have dehydrators. You can do like five or ten trays at a time, depending on when you get. They're not expensive. And I would finish them off after smoking in there, and that'll probably do it. Yeah, take them right from the smoking process to the dehydrator. So there's not a lot of time for them to hang out at room temperature with all that moisture in them. But you're going to have to dehydrate, Yeah, I think. Sounds good. Sounds like a good idea. I I I want some. I didn't think about this. (laughs) Good for you. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Cynthia Deli, and I'm from Fairlawn, Ohio. How are you? Hi, Cynthia. I'm good. Yeah, my question is, how much does the temperature vary among the different racks within your oven? I have space for four different levels of racks within my oven, and depending on the temperature difference, it'll make a difference in the cook time. Sure. It's a great question. It's not only vertical height, it's front to back. So the top back left versus the front bottom right could okay. be 30 or 40 degrees difference. Uh, we've actually tested that. Is that right? Yeah, it could be quite large. So what you need to do is set up the oven based upon how you're going to bake, put the thermometer on the rack you're actually going to use. Okay. So if you're on the lowest rack, put the thermometer on the lowest rack. I mean, a lot of people right. say put it on the middle rack in the middle. That's nonsense. Put it where you're going to actually cook. And also, doesn't the temperature change depending on how many sheets of things you have in there at one time? Yeah. Well, sure. And then like a thermostat in the house, it cycles. So if you set it for 375, it'll go down to 360 or 350, go up to 390. And different ovens cycle differently. The other thing is your oven is probably inaccurate. That is the... Right. Do you have gas or electric? Electric. That's better. That is better. That's more consistent. Okay. Yeah. And I did go out and buy an oven thermometer, but I wanted to wait until I talked to you so that I could test out how much a difference there is in the degrees. One of the ones I like is OXO makes one because it's easy to read. Some of them are oh. hard to read. Uh, yes. So that has a bigger dial. We're okay. actually designing one right now where it'll show you the range of temperatures over the last 20 minutes. Oh. So you can see the lowest and the highest to get some sense of... Because it does cycle. It does cycle, and some ovens cycle differently than others. Okay, that's right. They do, of course. You know, I think the most important thing is to get to know your own stove. Right. It's going to have its own little... Getting to know you. (laughs) Intricacies. (laughs) Should we sing that song now? Yes. Yes. I would just say pay a lot of attention, maybe even take notes. Okay, that's a good idea. And last piece of advice is never trust your oven. So set the the timer (laughs) for halfway through. Yes. Turn it around most of the time. And then I check like every three or four minutes. I check constantly because the baking time or the roasting time will never be right. The only thing is when you do check, do it quickly. Okay. I do that anyway. But now I have a good reason to explain why that batch of cookies burned. Unless you have, you know, a fan in the back of the oven convection, you can only do one sheet at a time. And you oh, have to evenly. evenly, you have to turn it around halfway through baking. If you have convection, you can do two sheets, but you still have to turn them around yeah. and switch the position it cha- halfway it through baking. It changes the whole equation. <laughs> Cookies are the hardest. Another question What color was your sheet pan? Silver. Good. Because yeah, black absorbs and can burn your Oh, uh, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank All right. you very much. Thanks for calling. Okay. okay. Yeah, bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you want to know how to boil a chicken or roast a whole squash, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. Once again, the number is 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, my name is Barbara. Hi, Barbara. What's your question? Well, I have a question about parchment paper versus Silpat, especially with cookies and cake. I want to know if there's a difference, you know, sort of what the pros and cons are. And are there times one is more preferable over the other? Well, certainly a Silpat's good because it's reusable. I personally find, though, that even a careful cleaning, it gets a little sticky and stinky. I'm and just you have not, to clean it. Yeah, I'm just not cleaning it well. <laughs> no, no, we, yeah. we can make this simple. Yes. Don't use Silpat. Just use parchment paper. <laughs> 
No, really? it, it, no here's I why. I actually agree. But- here's what you do. You go buy either a box of parchment paper, like a couple hundred sheets in a box, or they have them in rolls, and they're and individual the, sheets. And you get the brown kind, not the bleach yeah. kind, because it's uh, better for the environment. And they're very inexpensive. They last forever, you know, a box. And then you throw it out, and it's just very easy to manage. The other thing is sometimes I'm baking, I use two or three baking sheets if I'm doing a bunch of stuff. And so having one or two silpats, you know, is kind of a problem because I don't have enough. So it's cheaper, it's easier, and silpat you have to clean. The only reason to use silpat, though, is in a very high-sugar cookie, like a French cookie that's, that's okay. really sticky. Silpat will do a better job of releasing the cookie than parchment paper. But that's the only time I think there's a difference, right? Yeah. I didn't even know about that. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm more of a fan of parchment. I mean, I've never successfully cleaned them, so they end up smelling like bad oil. I put them in the dishwasher. Yeah, maybe. But I also find that there's a difference in the spread. Sometimes the silpat kind of bubbles. Huh. It doesn't actually lay flat. Really? And so it affects the spread of the cookies. Now, there are times you want cookies to spread, and there are other times huh. you don't. And I always find that the silpat gives me the opposite. Oh, when wow. I want them to spread, they don't. And when I do want them to spread... Silpat has a mind of its own. It's fighting with you. Right, right, <laughs> right. I think all serious bakers just probably use parchment paper. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's just easier. Yeah, I think. And, you know, in terms of what I just talked about, you just glue it down with a little butter or oil onto right. the sheet pan. I don't find that I have a lot of problems with that. And I, I use the tip. I crumple the uh, parchment before I put it down. That's smart, too. Yeah, it that's up, good. It doesn't move around. It doesn't fly away. That's great. Well, okay. So 10 points for parchment. <laughs> I'm a parchment paper person. Yes, me too. Okay. All right, so. we agree for once. <laughs> Thanks, Barbara, for bringing this moment of harmony to okay. radio and here. I, I want to thank the two of you because over the years, I have learned a lot from both of you. I really respect the way you treat home cooks. Oh, thank you. Well, I am one. So uh, <laughs> Me too. Thanks, Barbara. Okay, we appreciate thank it. Okay, guys. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Grace Young. She's author of Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge, the ultimate guide to mastery with authentic recipes and stories. Coming up after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do new American cuisine with uh, emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you always see me at the past making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. Personally, I've always loved seafood, and our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets, and uh, we air dry them, so it's nice and crispy. Uh, We do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel, and then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new exciting uh, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create and you don't have to go to the strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that, you know, that could be a Michelin star restaurant like Main Street Provisions. It's off the strip, but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that. (laughs) From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Grace Young is the author of Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge, the ultimate guide to mastery with authentic recipes and stories. For Young, the wok is a magical pan. It's one that, if used properly, 
transforms foods quickly into highly aromatic compounds. In fact, growing up, her father insisted that they sit at the table closest to the kitchen when they ate at Chinese restaurants so that they could enjoy the magic flavors of the wok before they disappeared. Grace, how are you? I'm very good. I love starting with a quote. Okay. Chinese cooking is a cooking of scarcity. Whatever the emperors and warlords may have had, the vast majority of Chinese spent their lives short of fuel, cooking oil, utensils, and even water. In terms of your book, how does scarcity infuse the notion of using a wok and the wonderful foods that come out of that? Well, I actually was completely fascinated by the fact that to stir-fry, all that you need is a wok, which is every man's pan. It's not an expensive utensil at all. Stir-frying makes less seem like more. And that's a beautiful notion that all of us should be thinking about these days, uh, to be reminded about the preciousness of food and fuel. You talk about the mysterious wok fragrance and aroma. Yes. Um, and, and you mention that quite a lot in the book. Could you get into that a little bit more? I mean, I, I, I kind of understood it, but I kind of didn't. Yeah, so throughout China, everyone stir-fries, but the Cantonese are considered the great masters, and my family is Cantonese, and from the time I was a child, whenever we ate at a Chinese restaurant or at home, my father would always point out whether or not the stir-fry had wok hay. So hay is the Cantonese word for qi, which in Mandarin means life force and breath Mm. and vitality. And so... To make a great stir-fry, you need to start with super fresh ingredients, and then your wok needs to be very hot, and you need to cook very quickly. And this quick cooking on high heat with really pristine ingredients just punches up the flavors and the texture of your stir-fry. And that creates a dish that has what the Chinese call a seared aroma with a concentrated flavor. And so when it possesses these qualities, the Cantonese say it has wok hay, which is that wok fragrance and wonderful, intense flavor. So a couple questions about woks. First of all, you have a picture in the book of uh, a clay brazier, which is the support on which the wok sits. And it's designed to use the absolute minimum amount of fuel. Could you just describe what that looks like? Uh Sure. The clay brazier stands about maybe one and a half to two feet high, and there's a little hole in there so that the wok can rest on the brazier. And then on the side, there's a small little hole so that you can feed it with charcoal, uh, wood twigs, dried grass, whatever. And it's a very simple stove for your wok. And it's traditional. It's uh, probably existed for hundreds of years in China. Okay, here's an impossible question. You have 60 seconds to describe the basic method of using a wok without visuals. You know, how do you use the bottom of the pan, the sides of the pan? What's the concept here? Okay, so um, you must preheat the wok. The Chinese say that there's a rule, hot wok, cold oil, which means that the, the pan must be preheated before you add the oil. I see lots of recipes that call for adding oil and then heating the pan. If you do that, your meat, your rice, your noodles are guaranteed to stick. Why is that true? Explain that to me. The pan needs to be sufficiently hot before you add the oil. It's just like you don't put a steak on a cold grill. You preheat the grill and then put the steak on. Okay. So you need to heat the wok until you can flick a drop of water and it evaporates within one to two seconds. So some, huh. some recipes I've seen, authors will say, preheat the, the wok for two minutes. But that's really dangerous because sure. if you have a very powerful stove, yeah, it could be smoking wildly by then. Or if you have a weak electric range, it might not be hot enough. So I say flick a drop of water and it should evaporate within a second or two. So I keep on flicking drops of water until I get it. And then you immediately add the oil. And then I swirl the oil around the bottom. Right. You know, I pick up the pan and tilt it on all sides. So the bottom is coated with the oil. And the oil has to be high smoking point oil. Right. It can't be extra virgin olive oil. It has to be grapeseed oil, peanut oil, canola. And then I add the aromatics, 
and I will stir fry them just for a few seconds until they're fragrant. Then I push them to the side of the wok. And if you're stir frying something like meat, I add the meat and spread it along the bottom of the wok. And nobody in China will ever do this. I let it sear for one minute. And that's because an American stove is not as powerful right. as a Chinese stove. And so you need that one minute just to get the caramelization going. If you immediately start stir frying without letting it spread out, then it's going to stick. The meat's going to go gray, and the flavor won't be as good. Why is the Chinese stovetop different in terms of BTU output or power than an American? Is it just a totally different construct? Is it like a liquid petroleum burner like they use, let's say, in Thailand or something? What is it? That's a great question. So the Chinese wok was intended to be used on a hearth stove. And a hearth stove, the fuel chamber is so efficient that the wok gets hot immediately. And within, I would say, uh, 30 seconds, the the heat is comparable, I would say, to a semi-professional stove like a Wolf or a Viking range. Hmm. So you're you're talking about 15 to 20,000 BTUs. Gee, I can go out and spend $5,000 on a wolf, and I can't get as, as good as a clay brazier. <laughs> I know. <laughs> with I with know. some twigs and, uh, and right. wood in, in China. That's, that's great. Well, I, I have a carbon steel skillet, and that over time, it's now black. Yes. You know, and I oil it constantly and constantly add seasoning to it, and you know, scrambled legs fly out of it because you take care of it. I mean, can we just talk about that for a second? I, I, I think you and I would agree this notion of having a piece of equipment like a wok or a carbon steel skillet that gives back what you put into it. You know, you it's a partner with you. You have to take care of it. If you take care of it, it'll take care of you as opposed to a nonstick, for example, pans, which I don't like, which they don't really ask anything of you. Their job is to not need you, you know, but a right. wok needs you. Could you just talk about that or, or maybe you disagree? Oh, no, no, no. I'm totally with you. I think that you form a relationship with your carbon steel wok, and you remember that when you bought it, it looked like a stainless steel pan, and it takes time to develop this wonderful patina. Nobody wants a new wok. The older the wok is, the better, and the food tastes better. And so you form this relationship, and... In time, you know, you remember when it was just like just starting to form a little bit of color. You saw it through the period that I call it uh, the adolescent period where it almost looks like it has walk acne. It looks like you've (laughs) ruined the pan, right? It's not like a cast iron skillet that just goes from gray to dark gray to black. A carbon steel wok in the early stages, the first two years, especially if you're not cooking with it much, just looks like you ruined the pan for most of the time, right? And so I used to like at the end of cooking with my wok, when I first got a wok, you know, I would like turn on the hood light and take a look to see if it gotten any darker. And if you watch it too carefully, you're not noticing anything. It has to be like months before it makes that leap. But suddenly one day it has this dark patina and you realize you're using less oil. You're, it's really ancient nonstick cookware. You have two odd things going on or interesting things in this book. You say when you grew up in your household, Chinese recipes were carved in stone. Yes. And then you talk about Chinese Jamaican jerk chicken fried rice. So, yes. So you, you are enamored of the notion that some of these basic approaches to stir frying or, or wok cooking can be applied to other ingredients from around the world. So when I started out writing this book, I thought I was going to be writing a book just about stir frying. I would compile the most delicious recipes and the best tips. And then as I started writing this book, I happened to find out about a Chinese-Jamaican restaurant in New York. And so I went to this restaurant, and the food was terrible. It was mainly Chinese-American chop suey, sweet and sour pork. But there was one dish that was really, it, it piqued my curiosity, and it was jerk chicken fried rice. I tasted this dish, and it was off the charts, one of the most incredible dishes I've ever had. I asked to go into the kitchen, and there stood a Jamaican chef and a Cantonese cook. (laughs) I say to the Cantonese cook, how do you make jerk chicken? 
And he shrugs his shoulders, and he points to the Jamaican chef. He goes, he said, he makes the jerk chicken, I make the fried rice. Mm. But it got me thinking because in New York City, as you know, there are lots of Chinese, or there used to be lots of Chinese Cuban restaurants. And then I read this article in the New York Times about Chinese West Indians. It had nothing to do with cooking. But there was an article that coincidentally was running about how there are 20,000 Chinese West Indians. So my mind is thinking about, oh, my God, you know, the Chinese travel to every part of the planet, right? And I want to track down all these different diaspora and ask them whether or not they made stir fries. And so as I'm writing this book about technique, I start also investigating Chinese Peruvians, Chinese uh, South Africans, Chinese Libyans. And I just uncovered the most fascinating story that wherever the Chinese went, there was one dish they always made, and that was the stir fry. Grace, thank you. Uh, Stir frying to the sky's edge is fabulous. My copy will be splattered with not too much grease or oil because you tell me not to use too much. Um, but it'll be well used in the next few months. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was Grace Young, author of Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge, the ultimate guide to mastery with authentic recipes and stories. You know, Grace Young doesn't just love cooking with a wok. She loves the whole notion of stir frying and how it permeates her culture. Chow Lao means stir-frying property or flipping it. Chow Lung Fan means stir-frying cold rice or, translated, means not adding any new information. Chow Yan means stir-frying a person or firing them. And Chow Fei means stir-frying tickets or scalping them. For those of us in the West, a walk is just a pan. But for millions of people in the East, a walk is indeed a way of life. Right now, I'm headed into the kitchen at Milk Street to talk to Milk Street's editorial director, J.M. Hirsch, about this week's recipe. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, in 1969, I was on a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean <laughs> over Iran, actually, northern Africa. <laughs> and uh, I, was just, I was camping, and I, I took a walk, and I found three guys making couscous over fire. Mm. And uh, it was fabulous. And uh, I never made it again because <laughs> I figured I could never replicate it. Uh, you uh, recently were in Tunisia and uh, you really sussed it out. And, it, and the secret to this recipe is something I'd never thought about or never heard of. So, so how do they make couscous in Tunisia? Yeah, I was really blown away because, you know, here in the U.S., we tend to think of couscous by the back of the box. You know, dump some hot water in it, fluff it with a fork, call it good. It's not a side dish in Tunisia. It is the main course. And the way they make it is fascinating. There's a lot of movement in it, and there's a ton more moisture than we would ever put into our couscous or think that it could absorb. But the reality is these little grains of pasta, which is what couscous is, can absorb a tremendous amount of liquid and, at the same time, a tremendous amount of flavor. And that's a great thing. So I call it couscous by the power of three, because there are three stages at which you moisten it, and there are three stages at which you stir or fluff it. So the moistening begins with the dry couscous. And you take your fingers and you rub oil, a little bit of olive oil, and a little bit of water into it just to kind of free up the grains, moisten them a little bit. The second stage, and this is where the cooking is completely different, is when it's steamed. You take that slightly moistened couscous and you put it into a steamer basket. And I've got to tell you, I expected it to all fall right through the big holes because this is a, a, a standard steamer basket with large holes in it. But because the couscous granules are already a little bit moistened, they stick together enough that they don't fall out. That steamer basket is set above a very rich, spicy stew of usually chicken and vegetables, but also fish and other ingredients. And all that flavor and moisture from the steam goes up and infuses the couscous above it in the steamer basket. The final step of moisture is when you drain away that stew, because it's not actually eaten as a stew. The ingredients are separated from the liquid in the stew, and that liquid is added to the couscous as a final step, which adds a ton of flavor and a ton more moisture. So those are the three times you're moistening it. The three times that you're fluffing it begin, of course, at the beginning when you're rubbing it with oil and water. The second one is after it's been steaming above the stew. You take a fork and you fluff it up like we normally would. Uh, the final fluffing comes at the end, where you drain off all that rich, delicious liquid from the stew, 
add it to the couscous and use a whisk. And that was the amazing technique there because a whisk is perfectly designed to separate the granules and really work that liquid into the couscous. It becomes fluffy, light, delicious, and really singular granules. Yeah, I saw the pictures you brought back with these huge bowls and these huge whisks, but it's pasta and it's cooked pasta. Mm -hmm. And I would think it, it, would, it would beat it up and make it all get sticky sort of like sticky rice, no? It was a surprise to me too. Just like I expected the granules to fall through the steamer, I expected the pasta to clump and get mushy, especially the amount of liquid that they were adding to the couscous, because it didn't seem possible to me that it could absorb that much and not get soggy and overly moist. But it didn't. They stayed very distinct and very light and fluffy. It was delicious. So what goes in the bottom? Is this a chicken dish? What kind of spices? So it's usually chicken. And of course, like so much of Tunisian cuisine, it's all based around harissa, the, the spicy red uh, chili paste that they use on everything from breakfast to dessert. And so they basically make a broth out of harissa, a couple of other spices, and then they cook in that, again, beneath the couscous in the steamer basket, chicken thighs, carrots, potatoes, red onions, a couple jalapenos, and that infuses the liquid. Then you take all those solids out, and then that rich liquid is what really gives the couscous a lot of And then you serve it with the chicken and vegetables on top. Yes, exactly. The then you mound your couscous now with all of that flavor built into it. You mound that onto a platter, and then you put all of the vegetables and meat over it. JM, you've once again traveled the world and solved a deep and lasting culinary problem. This time, how to make great couscous. JM, thank you. Thank you. You can find our recipe for North African chicken couscous, my story, and all of our photos at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, right after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair, which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal and industrial, to Scandi and Boho designs. Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash MilkStreet, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash MilkStreet for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one Baker story sponsored by Las Vegas. My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. 
It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple. And it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California, and what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang. But also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like, I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see. That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls uh, with my uh, learned co-host, Sarah Moulton. You're so nice. Yes, I'm ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Margaret from Missouri. How are you, Margaret from Missouri? Hi, Margaret. I'm great. How are you? We're good. How can we help you? For probably, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years, I've been trying to master making a cake just like the bakery, including the frosting. I just can't get it right. I've used every recipe I can find. The frosting tastes like shortening most of the time, and the cake, if I make it from complete scratch, it has no flavor. And if I try a box recipe where you add, you know, like an extra cup of sugar right. or something, I don't know. It's just not right. There's got to be some kind of magic trick that these bakeries are using that I don't know about. Well, a lot of my friends have worked at bakeries, and they actually tell me they use box mixes as the base for a lot of their cakes. Right. What? Yeah, they do. I mean, they mess around with it a little bit. What? But they start with essentially I'm a box horrified. mix. No, I was too. But now, you know, that's in Vermont, maybe not in New York. I would say that one of you, know, you said it has no flavor. You know, I think a key ingredient for a white cake would be the vanilla. So you want to make sure you're using, you know, really good vanilla extract or, you know, there's vanilla bean paste you can buy now or vanilla beans. We've actually found, uh, those of us who bake a lot at Milk Street, we always double the vanilla. Yeah. Go ahead and double it. You'll get better flavor. When you make the cakes, you're using butter or using a shortening? If it's a box cake, usually oil. Oh. The one I made from scratch, it had milk in it and butter. How is that? There's just no flavor to it. I don't... More vanilla. Okay, more vanilla. More vanilla. Right. And what about the frosting now? Gosh. See, I don't know. I think the way I was raised, to me, butter is margarine. 
so I always get so confused because everything calls for butter, butter, butter. Well, do they really mean real butter, or can yes. I use margarine? No, no, they mean butter. Yeah, and I figured that out finally. Tried both. I've tried real butter, and then I've tried margarine. Margarine seems to work better. It seems to give it a better crust after it's set on the cake for a while or cookies. But I still have that shortening flavor. I usually use like a half a cup of shortening, a half a cup of butter, and then like four cups of powdered sugar and a teaspoon of vanilla uh, and a we, tablespoon of milk or so. We can fix this. Get rid of the shortening. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Please, no shortening. <laughs> and use butter, not margarine, and you'll be all set. It's buttercream. Okay, powdered sugar, so vanilla, butter. milk, butter. Again, vanilla is going to be a key and ingredient. double the vanilla. Okay. No, you can buy lots of different kinds of butter. I, I would buy a, a Pluger-alike or a Danish butter with a higher butterfat content, 82 83%. For buttercream, okay. it'll taste better. Pluger is P-L-U-G-R-A. Okay, well, I'm going to try that. Okay. All right. Yay. Thanks. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Marianne from Fernandina Beach, Florida. How can we help you? Uh... We went to a local restaurant that we've eaten at a few times and I like. And Bob, my husband, ordered a beef tenderloin, and he just wanted a nice piece of filet without sauce. When it was presented, it looked so pale. And he said it tasted different. It tasted soft, not like a normal piece of filet that we've had many times before in our lives. And we were wondering why that is. Maybe they soak the meat to increase volume. I don't think that's likely. It sounds to me like they sous vide it, which means they put it in a vacuum sealed plastic bag. They put it in a water bath that is the same temperature that they want to serve the meat at. So 125 degrees, for example, for filet mignon. They can hold it for a couple hours at that temperature. So for restaurant service, it makes a lot of sense. The only thing they didn't do is sear it. No, because when you said it was pale, right. usually they do that. And the advantage to that is let's say you like rear meat. You know how you usually have a piece of meat and it's all – there's only a thin sliver of rear in the middle because it cooks from the outside in. But with yeah. sous vide, it's rare from top to bottom. But usually it gets uh, seared afterwards, and so you said it was pale. So, yeah. 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 So, so that could have affected your husband's enjoyment of it. He probably likes that sear. But I think, right. Chris, don't you agree, agree that sous vide is also gives you sort of a softer well, texture than we're used to? I had a uh, turkey club sandwich years ago when sous vide was just getting started, like 10 years ago. And it was perfectly cooked, but it had the texture of, wet paper towel. Yeah. It didn't have any chew. No chew. I, I think right. sous vide yeah. is for people who don't have their teeth. I mean, I'm sorry. You can gum the I mean, food. there's ways to get rare from top to bottom, you know, by cooking at a low heat, which is something we were taught in cooking school, without having that mushy texture. Okay. It is easy to do, and it's foolproof, and it's evenly cooked throughout, so that's the benefit Great for of eggs. Sous vide. Poaching <laughs> eggs. Gosh, it just looked terrible. He said it tasted like wet cardboard. Yeah, yes. well, that's what okay. it is. Okay, it was definitely sous vide. <laughs> All right, it was sous vide. Next time, get a place that doesn't sous vide it. How do you spell that? S-O-U-S-V-I-D-E. Two words. Yeah, it's two words. Well, I thank you very much. Yeah, Marianne, thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Donna Travis. And how can we help you? I have a question with regard to using the various oils that are on the market today. We have olive oil, we have extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil, just all different kinds, vegetable oil. And I'm not sure which is the correct oil to use when I am baking something or when I am using it to fry something. Well, the, the standard answer is don't use extra virgin oil for frying, for example, because it'll start to smoke around 370 or 80. A more processed olive oil, like a light olive oil, uh, will actually hold up better and be less expensive. I wouldn't use olive oil for frying under any conditions. I'd use grapeseed oil, use safflower oil, sunflower oil, canola oil, though I don't like the I don't taste like the of taste canola. of it. It's got it a all. fishy taste. I agree. Uh, for baking, if you mean coating a pan or something, what do you mean baking or an olive oil cake as an ingredient or just as greasing the pan? Yes, um, 
using it as an ingredient if they call for a half a cup of oil or something. Don't use olive oil. It'd be too strong unless you want a really strong olive oil taste, which most people oil. don't. Yeah. You want neutral oil. I mean, in the Middle East, they do tend to use like grapeseed oil or safflower oil. Sunflower oil. Or sunflower oil, oil yeah. things they use. And I would use one of those. Those three are very good. And also it depends on if you're looking for the flavor of the oil or not. You know, so in cases where I'm making Mediterranean food and, you know, I want to have the flavor of the Mediterranean, I'll use the extra virgin olive oil. I don't mean to deep fry, but maybe to finish with or, you know, in the sauce. But if you want something completely neutral, you go with the safflower, sunflower, or grapeseed. Or sometimes you really want a strong oil flavor, you know, like some of the nut oils, which are fantastic. I love pistachio and pumpkin seed oil. And, you know, toasted sesame oil we use all the time, but it's more for its flavoring than anything else. And all of those uh, nut and seed oils really go rancid faster than the regular oils and need to be kept in the fridge. There you go. That's all we know on that topic. Thank you. Okay, Okay, Donna. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Bill Street Basic is about saving time when making a midweek supper. You know, one of the things that does take time are vegetables because you have to cook them. And it turns out you can do this ahead of time. So try to blanch your vegetables before you need them. For example, kale or chard. You can prep them, that is chop them into the right size pieces. Blanch them in well-salted water until tender. Drain them and then squeeze them dry up to four days ahead of actually serving them. So a Sunday afternoon will be good through Thursday. Then we store them in an airtight container in the fridge and then reheat them in a hot skillet with a bit of olive oil and garlic or shallot. By the way, the same method also works for broccoli or green beans. Jake Henji Lopez-Alt is the author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. He's also the chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats. He's here today to explain why all flowers are not created equal. Hey, Kenji, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Uh... Okay, here's my question. There's cake flour that has low-protein, all-purpose flour that has kind of mid-level protein, bread flour mm-hmm. that has high protein, some as high as 13 to 14%. What does protein percentage mean, A, and B, I kind of know why it matters, but not scientifically. What's, what's the science of protein and flour? The protein content of the flour determines how easily it's going to form gluten. So gluten is that network of interconnected proteins that gives baked goods their structure. So a nice country loaf has a very strong gluten structure, and you're able to form these sort of large bubbles of air and water vapor inside them as they bake, and they kind of have a tough, crusty, chewy texture to them. Um, That's because there's so much gluten in there. When it comes to flour, the more protein you have in it to start, the more easily you're going to form a stronger gluten structure. So pastry flour, like you said, has very low protein, and that's because generally with pastry, things like biscuits and cakes, you generally don't want them to have a very strong gluten structure because you want them to have a sort of very fine, crumbly texture. But I've, I've come across recipes for pizza, Italian recipes, where they do use low-protein flour. Is that right? You might be confusing uh, milling size to protein strength. So in the U.S., most of the flour we get, you don't really have a choice in how finely it's milled. In Italy, you get flours that are milled to different degrees. So um, you've probably heard the phrase like doppio zero, so double double zero. That's the flour that's been milled to the finest degree. So it's very, very sort of light and powdery. But that flour can actually come in a variety of um, protein strengths. Okay, I didn't Um, know And so generally, the the flour you're going to be using for pizza, you know, in the U.S., you can get it imported. Like I use the Caputo brand double zero pizza flour. That's actually a relatively high protein flour, um, but it just happens to be very finely milled. So you didn't answer my question about protein. What is it? I mean, it, I assume that different kinds of wheat and different kinds of climatic conditions have different kinds of protein. Is that true? It's just, it's just the actual physical makeup of the wheat itself? Yeah, it is true. You know, as a consumer, though, this generally doesn't really concern you because you're only going to be able to buy the flour that's sold in your supermarket. And that flour is generally, it's already been blended by the company to make sure that it has a sort of consistent level of protein throughout the year, despite the fact that wheat crops might change depending on region or depending on climate. If you get gold metal or Pillsbury all-purpose, as I remember, it's like 10.9% protein, something like that. But if you get a King Arthur, it's around 12%. It's higher or more. 
So, right. so different all-purpose flours have different amounts of protein. Would this matter in a recipe if you substituted King Arthur for all, for Pillsbury, for example, or vice versa, or it just doesn't really matter for the home cook? It's not going to break any recipe. You know, you're not going to end up with sort of abject failure on your hands by using the wrong brand of flour. But yeah, if you, you know, if you bake up side by side something made with King Arthur bread flour versus Pillsbury bread flour, the King Arthur stuff is going to have a sort of heartier, chewier texture. Um, I think really the key is that if you want consistency, you do sort of have to stick to the same brand each time you bake a recipe. Uh, and last thing in the South, American South, they tend to use because they had low protein flours. Mm-hmm. So would you ever recommend using a low-protein flour for things other than cake? So what about a biscuit? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Biscuits are one of those things that so rarely come out right. And so, so yeah, I actually keep a bag of white lily flour in my pantry that I use specifically for making, um, for making biscuits. Kenji, thank you. I guess all flowers are not created equal. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Earlier in the show, I interviewed reporter Danny Lewis about the man who made food fly in television commercials. You know, the best things are things we never knew we needed. Before the smartphone, there was just the phone. Before cable television, there were only four stations. And before Starbucks, you just drank coffee. So drinking a latte on my iPhone watching Netflix, I can't imagine the world I used to live in. This was a world where food didn't fly. It just sat on the table until it was eaten. How did we ever get by? That's it for this week on Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Associate producer Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.